Hello and welcome and thank you for joining. I'm your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question of how God loves. I invite people from many walks of life to join me on this adventure. As we dive deeper into personifying God, we have to bring him into our three-dimensional world, but also understand he lives in another state of being, the fourth dimension. I'd love to welcome and thank our guest today. He is a recently retired English journalism professor from the Bethel University. He has a BA in Greek, an MA, and a PhD in English. His contributions to his respective fields are immense, ranging from publications in the magazine National Affairs and Christianity Today to books on literary criticism uh, to conferences, presentations on uh, Christianity and on freedoms. Our guest specializes in 18th century British literature. Yes, that is when men wore knee breeches and wigs and Jane Austen was a little girl. He is also responsible for spearheading efforts to start the humanities program at Bethel University. Please welcome Dr. Daniel Ritchie. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Seth. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, thought it would be a great challenge to go east to college, so I went to college in Massachusetts. Um, it was a very secular college, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the number of Christians was quite small. In my junior year, uh, my wife-to-be, Judy, transferred to Amherst College, and we pe- became good friends through the Christian Fellowship. Uh, we became good friends by arguing over what direction the Christian Fellowship should take. <laughs> and so uh, a couple of years later, we decided to make that relationship permanent and got married. Um, We went to grad school. She went to Princeton Seminary. I went to Rutgers. uh, So we lived in Princeton for a few years. And after my PhD was finished, we came to Bethel in 1985. Had a great 36-year career here. That is quite a career for an academic institution, 36 years. Well, thank you for doing an amazing job and spearheading the humanities program here. I haven't personally taken it. But I know many people have taken it and have really appreciated everything that you guys teach in that program. So um, so as a former academic English professor, what did a day in the life look like for you? Well, it depended on how many classes I would teach in any given day. Uh, I liked to teach in the afternoon because I'm most productive in the morning. So mm-hmm. even if it was a course I'd taught many times, I'd get up kind of early and uh, make sure I knew what I was doing. The PowerPoints were working, that I um, had some idea of how I wanted to approach a a given piece of literature or um, um, some political or philosophical text we were doing. So class preparation was really significant uh, for me. It also just takes a lot of time to do administrative work, Mm -hmm. whether you're a department chair or in charge of a program, as I was for many years, just doing your email. So uh, there's a lot of tasks of daily living. Personally, I could not do much scholarship during the school year. Uh, Grading papers and preparing was just uh, too too hectic. Mm -hmm. But uh, the most important thing was interacting with students and colleagues. And so I loved being on campus and seeing students and bumping into people in the hallways. And that was my work. Yeah, 
That sounds like, so are you expecting to do more scholarship outside of it now that you're retired or? Not necessarily. I am doing some writing. I have a writing project that I'm doing now and I have a few more in mind, but I'd still like to continue interacting with uh, people as um, fellow students in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, I have some ideas that I've uh, passed by the uh, alumni um, office here at Bethel, uh, family, parent relations, alumni, um, and the provost. And, and so some kind of teaching opportunities may emerge from that. In addition, my wife Judy and I formed a, a company, a small LLC, um, to take uh, adults abroad. Uh, we've gone to England and Ireland many, many times with students. And Adults would often say, why can't you do something like that for us? And mm -hmm. so we are going to do that. And uh, we'd initially planned to do it in 2020, but uh, something intervened uh, <laughs> in 2020 to prevent that. And so we'll see if we can get it started again. Yeah. You, you, what I hear, I haven't personally have had a class with you or anything, but you are um, always present with your students. You know how to... Uh, get them to engage and answer questions. And so that's why I was so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, so um, not only do you fancy yourself with teaching English, um, you also participate in publications and conferences like um, we've covered already. Um, you write and talk about more than just the subject of English, correct? Uh, yeah. The, the reason I wanted to be a literature professor is that literature extends into all of the fields of human endeavor, um, philosophy, theology, history, um, anthropology, sociology. Um, literature brings together the full human experience, whether it's in the plot of a novel or a play or in the impression of a poem. And so it allows you to deal with the questions that come up in all of those areas as well. Yeah, um, writing uh, poetry or a story of any kind, um, whether it be uh, in the form of fiction, uh, in a, a novel, or uh, the the theater, you know, like Shakespeare or um, any uh, literary works that kind of got turned into theater productions as well. Um, just telling the story, then all of that coming together. So yeah, it incorporates so many of the fields. So. Um, what are the things that um, influence you from these other fields when you are working in your English field? What are some of the things that you try to focus on? Well, at a place like Bethel, you're, you're free to incorporate elements of the spiritual life, of, of theology. So questions of, of human sin and what makes a valuable human life. Now, obviously, those are key questions in philosophy, too. And so in humanities, we begin with either Aristotle or, or Plato to talk about what, what makes up the good life. And we need a philosopher, someone who's really trained in philosophy, to help us through that. When we get to America, one of the books that I absolutely love is Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Mm -hmm. And that's really an early work of sociology, so it helped to have Samuel Zalanga on our team, who is a sociologist who could show us how uh, Tocqueville is, is analyzing society. We, we also teach with Angela Sabates from the uh, psychology department. We read Freud. 
Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, what Freud considers the basic human motivations, um, namely sexuality and mm-hmm. violence or competition, uh, those are psychological themes. So um, uh, the humanities program in particular allows us to broaden beyond just history or philosophy or psychology and bring them all together. Yeah, I've always been a student who a lot of times in high school, especially where they tried to focus on one um, subject, like history or whatever, a lot of times I'd find myself incorporating other parts of other classes into what I was talking about because I found everything to be so interconnected, even to this day. I think it's so hard to talk about one thing as if it were in a vacuum. And I think that's what the humanities program does well. And like CWC started uh, spearheaded by Samuel Mulberry and Chris Gertz. Um, they, you guys are all working on this idea of that things just don't start in a vacuum. There is history, there's context, there's everything about it that goes into um, everything. So, um, so we talk about relationships on this podcast. Um, I'm assuming you are aware of this. <laughs> um, so what comes to mind when you envision the word relationship and how does that interpret to your daily life as like an English professor or um, a husband? Well, it, uh, it influences everything in our daily lives, whether it's uh, our, our family relationships, our relationships at church, and of course, our, our friendships. I thought one of the things that I uh, could bring up with you as, a, as an English professor is the relationships we have with authors, mm-hmm. the people who write the books, who write the poems, who write the plays. Um, because I, th- I think that's something that's important and sometimes overlooked when we study literature. Students often think that what we want them to do is to get the content, know the content, be able to answer certain analytical questions, maybe uh, parse the uh, literary terms so they know what a metaphor is and they know how to scan iambic pentameter. And uh, it's not that that isn't important. The analogy that I like to use is, yes, it is important because think uh, think of music. Uh, you can say you like music, but um, I just don't want to have to learn about those quarter notes and rests. <laughs> it just uh, it wouldn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the technical things are important. But um, the the reason certain poems or plays or novels are valuable is because they they create a world, or at least they create a moment. In the case of a lyric poem, and ultimately you're entering into a relationship with that author about his or her insight into the thing he or she is writing about. Mm -hmm. So even the first time you read um, Emily Dickinson, the first time you read Jane Austen, you're entering into a relationship with her, with those authors, and then with those moments in their lives that they're discussing or that they're inventing in the case of a uh, purely fictional um, uh, piece uh, like Austin's novels. Mm-hmm. And over time, over time, if you come to love an author or a particular book or set of poems, your relationship changes as you, as you grow older. The, and the reason certain works of literature um, uh, 
persist through time is that they're capable of creating and sustaining those relationships, just like your relationships with your friends. Mm -hmm. When you have a good friend, the relationship changes over time. But if it's, if it's a truly deep friendship, it will teach you new things and it will become a source of life to you uh, as you grow older. Yeah, and that can be said about even, you said the first time, but like anytime you go back to that, you can pick up something different. You know, it's not just a one-time deal with anything. You go back to that relationship or that author or that relationship you have with the author and you reread certain things. And I, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, doing uh, literary criticisms and stuff, where you look at this over and over again and you can pick out different aspects of life. So like you may read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and just pick out like what romance was like when she was alive. But then you can also pick about, you can pick out like what family life was like back then because marriage is so different back then than it was today because marriage was a family affair. You know, you married for whatever the case may be, whether it's to gain land or do whatever, whatever, whatever. So you learn about all these things and being a lifelong learner, like you said, and providing opportunities to be a lifelong learner is very important, especially when we're talking about the context of relationships. If we aren't learning in relationships, those relationships won't last and they're always going to be superficial and we're always going to make new ones that never get anywhere. I'm going to pick up on Jane Austen mm-hmm. and, and Pride and Prejudice, if you don't mind. Um, I often tell the, the men in my class that they must read this book uh, in order to understand <laughs> many of the young women um, in their lives because um, there's something about Pride and Prejudice that really can't be replicated in any other way. And here it is. When Elizabeth Bennet turns down Mr. Darcy uh, the second time, um, the conversation that she has with him is that he should have been more of a gentleman, more of a gentleman. And that's, it's, it's obscured in the Kira Knightley production, which is Mm -hmm. why I don't like that movie very much. But um, what does she mean by that? Well, you have to read the whole book to, to understand that a gentleman above all is someone who keeps his word, unlike Mr. Wickham in the book. Mm-hmm. And really unlike her own father, who is very funny, but he's very cruel toward his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but a gentleman Newman says is someone who never willingly gives harm. And Mr. Darcy does give harm. He needs to learn in other words, how to be a man, how to be a gentleman. And, and that rebuke from Elizabeth Bennet inspires him to develop. That's what novels are all about. They're about our development as men and women. And you, you just can't get that really from any other source in quite, in quite that way. Mm-hmm. And each great book is like that. They have so much that repays rereading. And I know you, you as a musician, you like to listen to the same piece of music over mm-hmm. and over again, right? You pick out different things. If it's an orchestral piece, I usually be like, where's the oboe? You know, in this section and or when everything's playing, what part is building this part together? Exactly. And you see more of the genius of the composer the more you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think sometimes that we get so wrapped up in the uh, um, little details, we forget sometimes who wrote those little details. You know, um, so 
So, Seth, if I can just continue, though, yeah. then d- doesn't that mean that you have a growing relationship with Beethoven or mm-hmm. Bach or whoever is among your favorites? Yeah, you, you definitely do, because sometimes it's so easy to just like one one thing that they've done um, and then never listen to it again. But it's so different to listen to it again or listen to different works by them. And you definitely have this growing um, relationship with the um, person, even though they're not physically there. And I think that can be said about our relationship with God, too. You know, he may not be physically here with us. He's not tangible right now. But the more we go back to him and the more we go back to his works and his creation and so on and so forth, we get to shine light on this relationship that we're building with him. Don't you agree? I do. And um, it, it makes me think, too, of how God reveals himself uh, in, in Scripture in particular. Um, there are certain times of life that it may be the Gospel of John that just speaks to you or it's the letters of Paul. Um, as as you grow older, I think the Psalms speak to you more and more. They're so honest. Um, it may be that the the Gospels that that suddenly you're able to put yourself into the Gospel scenes in a new way. Um, so that's all part of our growing relationship with God. And and your podcasts are about how God loves us and. Clearly, he loves us by giving us his word, but I think what your podcast is, is good at seeing is that the, the word creates a relationship which changes as we deepen in our discipleship with Christ. Yeah, and sometimes it can be hard for us to change. Um, you know, we get stuck in our ways about certain things, and when we don't change, that relationship doesn't grow. Um, if we're not changing with the way... A relationship isn't this stagnant thing. It's not this thing that exists in a vacuum to bring uh, back uh, this old imagery about uh, subjects. A relationship is something that when you give time and effort to or some, uh, um, when you practice with it, it grows. And, you know, if you're just putting it on a shelf, uh, to use a lot of terms that uh, uh, the church uses today about putting God on a shelf and taking him down when we need him, if we're only putting a relationship on a shelf— it's not going to grow. It's not going to nurture. It's the same thing with anything, like a plant. If we're not nurturing that plant, it's not going to grow. And indeed, it's the same thing with books. Mm-hmm. If uh, if you read uh, Jane Austen once, <laughs> then uh, she has a, a particular place uh, in your life. But if you reread her or you reread Shakespeare or Milton or um, James Baldwin or mm-hmm. uh, whoever, uh, those um, those relationships grow, and you you grow as a person. You, you may know uh, C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. has this wonderful uh, comment about for every new book you read, you should read at least two, or I think he may even say three old books. And it's because he, he does have that that idea of a, a lifelong growing set of relationships with older authors, not to simply reconfirm what you've seen any more than you do that in music, but to, to see new things mm-hmm. because these works of genius, of a true literary genius, are capable of sustaining such a relationship and nurturing such a relationship. Yeah, I think sometimes we get so, to, so caught up with when we're reading books, especially in the information age, 
that we're just getting it for information. And it's not just the information because um, when we just read it for the information and we never go back to it, we never go back to it with a new lens. And I think that's something to be said about um, uh, literary um, works is that when we read it and then we read a new book, let's say, and we go back and read that book, we come at it with a different perspective. We're not the same person that we were when we first read it. You know, and that can be said about anything, relationships included. We're not the same person when we go back to that relationship. What we talked about yesterday, we had all that time after we talked about it to ponder it, to do whatever, and then all these other experiences with that that could help us view a different way of talking about that subject. And I think this is a great way to understand um, anything in our life, and especially our relationship with God and Scripture, if we're bringing... Um, just the word into this. It's so important to just like, yeah, you may have everything, you know, let's say memorized or you've read it over and over again, but if we don't go back to it ever, we're never going to pick out the pieces that could be more important now to us than it was back then. So, um, um, there are a lot of things that we could talk about when it comes to English, um, as a language or, um, uh, liter uh, liter literature um, and relationships and so on and so forth. But um, one thing that I found that comes up a lot recently is the uh, idea of grammar and like how it's not important and sometimes it is important and so on and so forth. Can you just explain what grammar really is? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I can. I just think <laughs> of it as the, uh, the, the rules that govern um, proper English usage. Mm -hmm. And uh, who's saying it's not important? <laughs> well, I've, I've seen the surgence of people saying uh, in day-to-day in -day conversations, grammar isn't that important because a lot of times we understand what the person's trying to get across. And sometimes grammar I've seen, even in ancient times when the Greeks were doing it, um, when they started publicizing books and rules and stuff about how to use language, they would use it as a tool to... Um, you know, separate the, the, the literate from the illiterate. I'm not saying that's happening today, but I'm just saying like I'm seeing sometimes where I, I grew up in a grammar household. We were always corrected on our grammar when speaking a lot of times. Um, not so much anymore because we're all adults and my parents are like, well, now we've taught you the rules. You should probably use them. But um, growing up like that, sometimes I catch myself correcting other people, not saying out of like, oh, they're lower than me, but just like, because it's just a habit that I grew up with. But some I had done that to someone, and they say, well, grammar is just a way for people to separate other people from a group. Do you think that's at all true? Well, it could be true. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you, do you know the, um, the film and, and uh, musical My Fair Lady? Yes. Uh, so that's a, that's a humorous look at, uh, at this issue. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, uh, people who speak a common language do use the same rules of grammar, and, and mm -hmm. the rules are changing somewhat, yep. but um, um, it, like whether you use who or whom, uh, uh, the difference between lie and lay, these are, these are not big issues. Mm -hmm. um, as an English professor, I almost never talk about grammar okay. in class. It's just, uh, it, it is kind of boring, I think. Um, I do correct students' grammar on papers, but I don't usually take off much, if anything, for it. it just what I, what I tell them is this is the last time anybody's going to be paid 
to help you with your grammar. So you can learn it now and you'll look better when you apply for a job or you can choose not to learn it now and mm -hmm. you'll look worse when you apply for a job. But the, the, the way to learn English grammar is to study another language. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know language instruction has changed greatly uh, as well. But um, for me, studying Spanish, I had a fantastic Spanish teacher in high school. And then Greek in college uh, really made me understand the rules of English grammar much better. Um, but uh, I, I never think about this, uh, these issues, and I never correct anyone's grammar in public or even in private. Mm -hmm. uh, only when I was grading papers would I do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's just kind of kind of rude, I think. Yeah, so that's what <laughs> that's why I was bringing up the topic because I grew up in in the and it wasn't uh, my parents were super picky about it, but um, I've had that experience of correcting grammar and then, you know, I just picked it up because that's what I was I would say, though, that if you're in a professional setting um, and you hear somebody using bad grammar or if I'm talking with somebody in customer service and it's just a matter of being uh, more professional um, mm -hmm. th than anything else. And that that is important uh, if you're hiring people and so on. So, But I, I never think about these things. Yeah. So grammar is just one aspect of language, especially in English, because we're able to um, have different ways of grammar than other languages are, like switching where the verb is and so on and so forth. And we have um, not not everything we talk about is translated directly over to another language, as you know, with Spanish. I'm not I'm no expert on any other language or in English. You're the expert in that. Um, but we there are so many ways in which we communicate certain ideas: veiled threats, veiled bribes. You know these indirect speech acts that we do. Um, and along these lines are poetry, satire, comedy, and metaphors. Um, do you think understanding certain intricacies of language influences the way we have relationships? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Judy and I uh, went to grad school in the East, went to college in the East. Uh, she grew up among a lot of Jewish and Italian uh, friends. I had a lot of Jewish friends. There's a lot of irony <laughs> in, in other parts of the country, and we are irony-deprived in Minnesota. Uh, so we have to be careful uh, when, when we're using irony to make mm -hmm. sure people, people get it. But uh, irony, um, other people use sarcasm. I use irony. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and a lot of people mix the two up, and they're not the same. Well, uh, actually, I was kidding there. They, they are very close to being oh. the same sometimes. <laughs> but uh, irony is a nicer word. So Got it. Um, anyway, um, if you, you have to judge your communication with the, the people you're with. And if, if they're not going to understand the language that you use because you use big words, you shouldn't use them. And mm -hmm. the same is true with irony. You shouldn't use it if you're uh, with people that really don't get it. On the other hand, if you're with people who get it, um, it, it makes life much richer and much more comic. I think that's important that it makes that it makes life comic uh, because life is, um, as Samuel Johnson said, this life is barren enough as it is. Let us be careful how we strip her. 
<laughs> characteristic, uh, very uh, sharp Johnsonian uh, use of language there. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have uh, beautiful uh, words sometimes, or at least irony, it, um, it enhances life. But if you're using it just to impress others, then, then not so much. So in class, I would sometimes use uh, more complicated language in class because it was the right word and because uh, it, it would help students uh, expand their vocabulary and so on, but, uh, but, but not in ordinary, non-common parlance. <laughs> yeah, and it, with English especially, I think a lot of times um, we speak a lot in metaphors. And I don't know what it's like in other um, languages that much because I don't speak another language. Is that kind of do they s- use a lot of metaphorical speaking in Spanish? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I, 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 metaphor is is in every every, every language. Um, every, every every language has its own um, has its own strengths. Um, um, I, I really think French is just a very beautiful language. Um, Arabic, I learned a little Arabic because I took uh, students abroad a couple of times. And the amazing thing about Arabic is its emphasis on, on unity, how so many different words come from a single root, a three-consonantal root. Arabic and Hebrew are like that. Um, and that goes along with the Islamic emphasis on unity. Mm-hmm. Um, English has a super large vocabulary because it's both German and then after 1066, we had the mixture of French. Mm-hmm. So it has these two huge strains. On the other hand, it doesn't have as many rhymes as it, Italian does, for instance. So the Italian, the, you know, the opera uh, librettists have, a, they have a, an easy time if they're writing in Italian. So each um, each language has its has its own strengths, and that's the beauty of them. Um, and it also is the challenge of uh, to to bring it back to theology. Uh, a lot of our theology came out of um, the 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 Greek language, mm-hmm. and and then ultimately Latin. But there's certain ways of expressing things in in Greek that influence the way our theology has gone. To me, that's the that's the most interesting and and beautiful thing about different different languages. Yeah. So, how can misinterpretations of these intricacies of different languages and what their strengths are, how can those affect the relationships we have? So, like in Greek, they had a different way of expressing something that we do in English, and so like a lot of times when um, you go to let's say chapel here, our our amazing um, pastors, camp- campus pastors. A lot of times they'll bring up the Greek because they didn't translate it, the ideas well because of a certain intricacy that Greek had that English didn't have at the time. Um, well, first of all, uh, let me make a theological point here. Okay. Uh, this is from Laman Sana, the great um, African theologian who taught at Yale for many years. He said the essence of Christianity is in translation. Ultimately, it's God translating himself into humanity. Mm -hmm. But it also has to do with God choosing to reveal himself in Scripture, in the written word. And we believe that we can read God's word 
in English. We don't have to read it in yep. Greek or Hebrew, whereas Muslims have to read the Quran in Arabic. It is not translated. Uh, if you have a translation of the Quran, it's not really the Quran. But Christians do believe that the essence of, of uh, the word can be translated, okay? So that means you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew mm -hmm. to understand Scripture. However, uh, um, knowing where certain words come from uh, does often help. Uh, it helps you see connections, connections between the old, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, and uh, within the Greek language itself, how, how Greek was being used um, at the same time uh, as uh, Scripture was being written or, or beforehand. So that's where uh, Greek dictionaries and lexicons uh, all have their, have their place. Again, the purpose, though, when, when you're preaching or teaching on it is to clarify, not to mystify, not to impress people with your mm -hmm. learning, but to clarify what, to the best of our ability, we think Paul meant, what the gospel writers meant. Mm -hmm. Is there any examples where sometimes the interpretation of it um, was misread in like any type of uh, history or anything, do you think? Oh, sure, yeah. So the reformers, uh, the reformers wanted to go back to Greek and Hebrew because the... Um, the Bible existed in Latin translation, mm -hmm. uh, really the, the Vulgate translation from St. Jerome, really from 400 on. So I'll give you an ex a, a famous example. In the um, parable of the Good Samaritan, the, uh, the man who's traveling is left uh, half dead uh, in, the, um, uh, in, the, in the road. And uh, I think the, the Latin word is semi-vivus, which means half alive. And so uh, because of the allegorical interpretation of Scripture at the time, this was taken by some, uh, some contemporary, that is some medieval and, and early Renaissance scholars, to mean when, we're, when we are sinners, we're still half alive. We're not, we're not completely dead. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the Reformers, of course, thought that, first of all, just that allegorical approach was, um, was a, a mistake. Um, and then the, the words that were used for, for repent uh, were translated from Latin, and, and they suggested that, that, that we weren't utterly lost without, without Christ. So those are cases where the reformers' emphasis, in this case on Greek, really influenced their theological break with the Catholic Church. So there, there, there are a number of instances like that that have deep theological significance. Um, uh, but uh, in, in ordinary uh, preaching, it, it always helps, I think, for a pastor to uh, be familiar with the the resonance of whether they're Greek or Hebrew words um, in, in preparing his or her message. Do you think that's one of the reasons why a lot of times the Bible's written in metaphors? Like, it, it maybe the translation is kind of not exact, but the metaphor of, let's say, the Good Samaritan, bringing that back up, 
it's still there. The story still stands, even though the translation or the reading of it may be a little off. Yeah. Um, well, all translations are interpretations. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the the Italian word uh, traduzione is uh, there. There are also um, uh, betrayals. Uh, um, and and yet, uh, we believe that uh, the translations can be faithful. And there, there are some mm-hmm. translations that are more word for word, that try to be more literal. There are others that are dynamic equivalents that are trying to give the equivalents. However, regardless of your approach to translation, you're asking about the fact that there are metaphors uh, in and and fictional stories. The Good Samaritan mm-hmm. is a fictional story, as is the prodigal son. Um, and so Jesus uses, he uses metaphors all the time, his names for himself. I am the bread uh, come down from heaven. I'm the, um, I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All, all of these are, are metaphors. Uh, Christ was the rock. Um, so um, those are all in Scripture, and they're all ways of God to use a, a Reformation phrase, accommodating himself to our understanding. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that there's something beyond that that we ought to be able to grasp. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of people do go wrong, frankly. They say, well, this is just, this is just a way of expressing who God is. Or to, uh, to use your language a little bit, uh, about personifying God. How, how about if we personify God in our own way? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that's such a great idea uh, because God, it, it, we, we believe, I'm speaking as a, as a Protestant now, as a Reformed Christian, that God chose to reveal himself in particular ways and he did it for a purpose. We believe that God actually does reveal himself to us and he reveals himself to us as the burning bush. He reveals himself to us as the Lamb of God. And it's not as though there's some deeper reality that we can get to that gets us beyond the way God chose to reveal himself. On the other hand, it is true that these are God's ways of accommodating himself to our understanding. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's appropriate to look at the way God accommodates himself in certain ways and try to see that as God's character? Or do you think that's more inappropriate to no. do so? Oh, yeah. I mean, what 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 other alternative do we have? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it does take, uh, I, I, I think we do depend on good good scholars and uh, faithful scholars to, uh, to guide us along the way, biblical scholars, biblical theologians. And, of course, the poets had to deal with this, too, um, the richest area of British poetry, maybe of all poetry in English, is the 17th century. It's John Donne and George Herbert. I love John Donne. And John Milton. And uh, Milton himself was quite a, quite a theologian, a little bit uh, heterodox. But um, he, uh, he, he was very aware of this notion of, of accommodated language. And Paradise Lost is just a long poem about the fall. And so he's, he talks about the fall of Adam and Eve, and he talks about the fall of the, uh, the fallen angels, the devils, the demons. 
And of course, no one has ever seen any of this. Mm -hmm. And so he's describing things no one has ever seen. And uh, he uses the language that he can from scripture and theology. But then he also has to invent invent metaphors that he believes are, are appropriate. And the same is true in different ways with both Dunn and Herbert. Mm-hmm. What's a Dunn poem that you really like? I um, One of the, the ones that I kind of latched onto when I first started reading John Dunn was in high school, um, Death Be Not... Uh, yeah, Death Be Not Proud. I just l- loved every, like, I really dissected it in high school because we were told to pick a poem from a list of poems, and I chose this one, and to, like, just kind of look at it and think about it in different ways. And I think it's in the form of an apostrophe, right? Yes, yeah. he is addressing death, so that yep. is an apostrophe. Yep, so it's, uh, it's I, think it found, I think it found its way in because a lot of times... Um, the way people view death is this is not what John Donne thought of death. And I think it was so interesting to me to read that poem about like um, death. You're just like, you know, uh, you could be attributed to these other things. Thou art slave to fate, chance kings yeah. and desperate men. Yes, exactly. Um, I don't have it memorized. I did in high school and I didn't use it after that. And then I lost it. But I should go back to it. And reread it with a new lens that I haven't had for a while. So, but I think it was just so interesting to just read. And it was a holy sonnet. So, uh, very, very different from um, other poetry that was on the list that I had to read. So, I thought it was very interesting. So, that's that's my experience with John, my beginning experience with John Donne. And I kind of latched onto that. And just like the way he wrote it, the meter, where he put things was very nice. So, um, besides. The idea of these metaphors and ways to see God's character in the Bible through these accommodations. Um, when it comes to, you said, personifying God in our own way, you kind of touched on that. And did I don't think it was clear. Do you think that's appropriate or do you think that's not so much appropriate in a way to like think about God as someone that we could be in relationship on earth with? I think you're asking two different questions. Of course, okay. of course, we have to be in relationship. We want to be in relationship mm-hmm. with God. But um, theologically, I believe God has given us the way to do that through Scripture. Okay. And the names that he's chosen for himself, I think, are definitive. And so it's, it, I do think it's risky to come up with new names for God. Um, uh, unless you're you're very much aware of your um, limitations, your fallenness, you're doing it in a very um, uh, very measured way. Um, the to go back to philosophy for a minute, um, the philosopher Feuerbach um, said that God is really just a projection of human wants, mm-hmm. and that's very easy to do. To, to make God a projection of whatever we desire, and then we invent the words for it, and God becomes, frankly, we make God in our own image. So it is the problem of idolatry. Um, Luther said that all of the sins ultimately come down to idolatry, that they're making God in our image. So that's the, that's the danger of using our own language to personify God. The other approach is to mine scripture 
and and see how God has chosen to define himself, how God has chosen to uh, communicate with us. How does God name himself? Well, he names himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are the names that he chose for himself. And um, uh, those are names. Metaphors are something different. I am the good shepherd. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a, that's a metaphor. And then there's similes. God is like this. God is like and there, and that's that's a broader category, and similes usually just uh, make one comparison, one limited comparison. When God, when it says in Isaiah, "Can a mother um, forget her child?" Well, he's comparing God's inability to forget us to the inability of a mother to forget her child, but he's not naming God as a mother. Mm-hmm. So uh, it takes some scholarship and some. Um, you know, some integrity, scholarly integrity to, to, to make these distinctions. But I do, think they're, I do think they're important. And they open up a world of, po- of possibilities, but they do restrict you from creating God in your own image. And mm. inevitably, that's, that's what happens. And the, the, image, the image becomes, frankly, a kind of predictable uh, reflection of the era that you live in. And that's not, frankly, worth it, mm-hmm. in in my opinion. It's, Milton and Dunn and Herbert rose far above that in in their poetry. Yes, they were men rooted in their time, but they but by attending to the word so intensely, they were able to pr- uh, create literature that far uh, outlasted their time and continues to nurture us today. So one thing that I do on the podcast is kind of see how God is similar or how we can see God's character through um, earthly relationships. Do you think that is appropriate in, in the oh, sense? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, the, um, the, uh, let, let me go back to this great verse in Ephesians, and this is hard to translate, but the translation I like is he, Paul is talking about God as uh, the fatherhood of God, and he says, um, in whom all fatherhood, from whom all fatherhood takes its name. So God is a father not because he's like our earthly fathers. Mm-hmm. Our earthly fathers become fathers in the best sense when they imitate God, God's relationship to, uh, to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Um, one of loving, one of, of revealing himself, one of acting in concert with. Um, that's what happens within the Trinity. Um, having said all that, that should influence our relationship with our children as, as fathers. Um, and maybe as a, as a son, your, your relationship with your, your father as mm-hmm. well. Um, so so there's, a, there's an element um looking at uh, Jesus' relationship with his mother too is is pretty uh um revealing and interesting and uh she obviously knew him so intimately uh the the wedding at Cana whatever he tells you to do do it she says to the people who are filling up the pots of water um and uh, she uh, she upbraids him. Remember in Luke when when he when he leaves her, 
and Joseph uh, to stay at the temple. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, looking at our the way our relationship with God translates into our earthly relationships is absolutely appropriate and, and super important. Jesus' relationship with his disciples has everything to teach us about relationships between teachers and students. Um, so the list goes on and on. Paul's uh, collegial relationships with uh, Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and even their arguments over whether John Mark was going to stay with them. Mm. Um, absolutely. Yeah, so the disclaimer really is, is kind of what I said at the beginning. While we try to bring God into a tangible sense by looking at him through relationships um, and scripture, things that are tangible, I always say at the beginning, but we have to understand that these things may help us understand him from an earthly level, but we also have to understand that we will never, we can never fully understand him, and so he's in the fourth dimension. But with that, we also have to understand that um, these are just, snippets of what we think God's character could look like. Do you agree with that statement? I do. You mean from the Bible? Yeah, from the Bible and from like how we can see goodness in others and like how how God's goodness can be seen in the Bible and how that God's goodness can be seen in another person. Yeah, uh, the Bible doesn't give us a a, a full blueprint for mm -hmm. those for our relationships or doesn't really give us a blueprint for for much, mm -hmm. uh, and this is this is one as Christians read the Bible. This is one reason that um, that Muslims are are critical of Christianity because they they follow a religion that does provide a blueprint for mm -hmm. social life, and we don't. Uh, we just have snippets, as you say. So um, so we depend on churches and theologians and uh, discipleship groups and all kinds of things like that to fill out what it means to be a Christian in 2022. Mm -hmm. And it's different from what it meant to be a Christian in 1622. Or when it first started, you know, oh, white martyrdom, indeed. when that, when red martyrdom was no longer a thing and they had to think about white martyrdom and it just changes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Often Christians want to go back to the early church as if that's a pattern and that's understandable, but it's, it doesn't really work for us. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no definitive model. Yeah. And that's one thing that I love about Scripture, too, is that if it's God-breathed and it's living, it's going to change with the times, too. And um, there's where the, the Holy Spirit comes in, obviously. And, and bringing back what we talked about at the beginning with we go back to something. Um, we can't just read it once and then expect to have that relationship with it. And it be not become it doesn't become living when we only read it once, like Jane Austen or whatever. So, just to bring it back to that full circle of just looking at it, even from a literature standpoint, you know, it just you can't we can't go back to when Jane Austen was, but we can get a living sense of what it was like. So, um, my final question, since we're coming to the close of our time here, is. If there's one thing you've learned from your discipline as an uh, English prof and your uh, mastery of certain uh, uh, areas in your fields and everything you've learned from life um, in general, if there's one thing that has helped you envision your relationship with God, um, 
what is it and how can we use that in our daily lives to help discipline ourselves as like a spiritual discipline? I thought you were going to ask me about bow ties because you and I <laughs> are the main bow tie wearers at Bethel University. I got pheasants on mine right now. <laughs> um, I, I, I had an answer all prepared about how bow ties were essential to uh, uh, literary scholarship. But um, <laughs> no, I, th I think uh, let's, let's come back to the, the notion of... Um, reading and rereading and renewing uh, friendships with uh, books and authors and uh, realizing that they, they never grow old. Mm -hmm. um, I, it may be Henry Nouwen or someone like that who says, um, whenever someone thinks that um, he or she doesn't have uh, more spiritual insights to gain that person has no more spiritual insights to gain. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a decision that you've made. Uh, he says it much more eloquently than that, but it's a, a decision that you've made not to be open to, to new insights. Mm -hmm. And this, um, this is definitely true in teaching. If you're not, if you're not excited to see the, the fall come around, and for me, if it's September, it means Beowulf. We're, we're teaching about monsters uh, mm. in September. The State Fair, um, you know, cheese curds and Beowulf. Um, <laughs> and Sounds if, like a great time. <laughs> we should do it sometime. And if you're not excited to uh, take uh, students through uh, whatever your, your subject is, whether it's Beowulf or, um, or Plato or whatever, uh, then it's time to, to stop. And, and I think that's, there's a spiritual truth to that too. Um, that if there's not some growing edge in your spiritual life, some growing edge, um, there's, there's something off. And um, I've been blessed to have a full career where those opportunities, the opportunities to uh, meet ever new generations of students and introduce them to this great literature year after year has been uh, presented to me uh, over and over again. Um, but that, that openness to renewing friendships with books and authors and creating new ones with colleagues and students, that's sort of my, my closing hope. Yeah, it's a very good closing hope to just revisit, you know. Um, I'd just like to thank you for joining me. Um, it was such a pleasure to get to know you outside of what I've known, like passing by in the hallway moments because um, I've never had a class with you, but also just like your wisdom um, of 36 years teaching uh, at Bethel, not just English, but um, everything that incorporated with that. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for coming on. And I'm sure everyone is going to go home after this episode and be like, Wow, I gotta read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and I hope they do because it's a it's a good book. It's thick, so but it's a good book. Thanks very much, Seth. It's been a pleasure.